I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 18, verse 31. Luke chapter 18, verse 31. Uh, One common error in reading our Bibles is that we sometimes too quickly uh, jump to thoughts about ourselves. We too quickly want to know what it has to do with us. Obviously, application is important. We want to answer the question of so what. We're not just studying ideas. These ideas, the truths we find have implications for us, but we also ought to be careful we don't jump too quickly to what does this have to do with me, lest we just gloss over things that when we don't know that answer right away, when it's not obvious. When our text today, as we continue through the Gospel of Luke, the Lord is not giving us things to do. Uh, He's not giving us things to occupy ourselves with. Uh, He's not teaching what is expected of us. He's not telling us a parable about the kingdom of God. He's teaching us about himself. And he's teaching us about the work that he will accomplish. And so this text summons us, it does have implications for us, but it first summons us to see the Lord Jesus and the greatness of who he is and the greatness of what it is that he has done. And so we want to linger for a time and behold Christ, our Savior, if indeed we're trusting in him. And we might, the things that we're going to talk about that Jesus is going to show us, if you been around the church and you believe in the Lord Jesus, you believe the gospel, these things are not going to be new things. So we're not really, I mean, hopefully you'll learn some things, but we're not really learning new facts if you've been around. Uh, These facts we've intellectually known for quite a while, but the reality is in the busyness of our lives and the distraction of day-to-day business, we can easily lose sight of the greatness of what we're going to look at today. Uh, We lose sight of Christ. We start to be distracted by other things that look more, uh, maybe more appealing in some way or more entertaining. And even, I mean, this happened throughout history, even in the Psalms. Uh, the psalmist who wrote Psalm 119 has to pray that the Lord would turn his eyes from worthless things, from vain things, because these uh, things of the world sometimes look appealing and they can be distracting to us. And we can set our eyes upon them in an inordinate way and even desire these things in a in an in a, uh, in a inordinate fashion. And so we want to stop during our time now, and we want to interrupt these distractions, and we want to look again at Christ and, and what he tells us he was all about when he came to earth. And we want to view this through eyes of faith. Again, we're not just talking about collecting information, we're talking about beholding Christ with eyes of faith. And so... As we do this, I'll just invite you uh, to pray with me that the Lord might be pleased to help us to do this, to to see the beauty of Christ in this text and to to love him, to believe in him, to trust in him all the more. So I just invite you to pray again with me. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are easily distracted. Even now, many things call to our attention, Uh, many things that please the senses call out to us. They might be lusts of the flesh. They might be bad, wicked things. They might even be good things that we just uh, tend to covet, which in itself, of course, is is sin. So, Father, we confess these things to you. We pray that you'd help us in this time to focus on your word and to hear your word and to see the greatness of Christ. You've given us your word to show us who you are, to show us the glory of your Son. We pray that you would do that even now. 
Father, I am nobody uh, to present these things. We need you to teach us by your Spirit. We need you to illuminate our hearts and to convince us of the greatness of our Savior. So we pray you'd be pleased to do that in our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, during one sermon uh, on the suffering of Christ, uh, preached by Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, he preached from Isaiah chapter 50, and he said this, he said, Behold your king. I bring him forth to you this morning in spirit and cry, Behold the man. Turn hither all your eyes and hearts and look upon the despised and rejected of men. Gaze reverently and lovingly with awe for his sufferings and for his person. The sight demands adoration. I would remind you of that which Moses did when he saw the bush that burned and was not consumed a fit emblem of our Lord on fire with griefs and yet not destroyed. I bid you turn aside and see this great sight. But first attend to the mandate, put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. All around the cross, is soil, the soil is sacred. Our suffering Lord has consecrated every place whereon he stood, and therefore our hearts must be filled with reverence while we linger under the shadow of his passion. Of course, he's using that word passion to speak of his suffering. And so as we, too, linger for a time today, this afternoon, under the shadow of Christ's passion, let us likewise, to the extent that we can, realize that we are approaching hallowed ground, sacred ground, so to speak, if ever there was such, and to come reverently and expectantly with humility and with a quietness before our Lord. And so I invite you to read with me, starting in verse 31 of Luke chapter 18, the word of the Lord says this, And taking the twelve, he said to them, this is Jesus, of course, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So as we look to Christ, we want to first, as we look to him in this text, as he presents himself to us, we want to first behold him who was spoken of long ago. Him who is the one that was, is the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan throughout the scriptures, spoken of long ago. So we want to behold Christ in that capacity. Secondly, we want to behold him in his reproach and in his glory. And thirdly, to behold him with eyes of faith. Again, we are not just coming to look at him with, uh, and gather some information and think that's neat, uh, but to view him through eyes of faith. So first, I invite us to behold the Christ spoken of long ago. Uh, the Christ who is the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. We see this in verse 31, where Jesus tells us, or where we are told, by Luke I should say, that Jesus took the twelve aside, and they're continuing on their journey to Jerusalem. And Jesus says to them, behold, or see, we are going up to Jerusalem. Now if you'll remember, uh, this large section that we are part of, that goes all the way back to chapter 9, verse 51, is often referred to as the Journey to Jerusalem section. There have been frequent references to the fact that Jesus' ultimate destination 
is Jerusalem. That's his ultimate focus. Even as he's doing other very important works, very important deeds, teaching all over, uh, ultimately, chapter 9, verse 51 says that his face was set toward Jerusalem. That this was where he was ultimately going. This is where his, his, his earthly ministry would climax. We've seen uh, references to his journey to Jerusalem in a few places uh, since chapter 9. We saw it in verse, chapter 13, 22, chapter 17, verse 11. And now in these final few accounts, final few stories before he triumphantly enters into Jerusalem, uh, we see uh, geographical markers at the beginning of each story. So here we're told he's going to Jerusalem. Next week we'll see he was near Jer Jericho, then in Jericho. In verse 11, he's back to drawing near Jerusalem. He's on his way. He's getting close. And in chapter 19, he'll in fact enter Jerusalem. This is one of the ways that Luke tells us the central purpose of Jesus' coming. And the fact that it was not simply to teach it was not simply to heal. It was not simply to cast out demons, all of which were important, all of which were part of his ministry. But the focal point, the climax of it, were the events that would take place in Jerusalem. This is, this is what Jesus himself said. This is what Luke is trying to help us understand and see. And the specific events, a number of things would happen in Jerusalem, but the specific events in which all of this would climax are the things that he discusses and tells them about here in verses 32 and 33, which we'll get to in just a moment. And so he says they're going to Jerusalem, and in verse 31 still he says, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Everything written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. So the, the Messianic figure of the Old Testament had a, a number of different titles. Number, a number of different descriptors. So he was the Messiah, or the Anointed One, or the Christ. Those are all synonymous. He's also referred to as the Son of David. He'd be the king from David's line who would establish an eternal rule and reign. He's also described as the servant of the Lord, particularly in the book of Isaiah, throughout that, which we'll see more of in a bit. And he's also called the Son of Man, which is how Jesus refers to himself here. And commonly throughout the book of Luke, he refers to himself as, in this way, as the Son of Man. This descriptor is not merely talking about the fact that he was human, though he, he did have a human nature and took to himself a human nature. Uh, this description is taken mainly from the book of Daniel, in chapter 7, where we find this figure who's referred to as the Son of Man, and we see that he is given an eternal kingdom, an everlasting dominion. But as Jesus says here in Luke 18, that, he is, uh, that everything written about the Son of Man would be fulfilled, uh, be accomplished, he's not simply referring to the words of Daniel, but what the various prophets have written about this figure, about the Messiah, about the Son of David, the Son of Man. So this figure is the one who would come in and fulfill God's plans for the redemption of his people. He is the one who would come and bring about the renewal of the earth. He's the one who would turn back the curse of God upon the earth and upon mankind because of sin. He's the one who would crush the head of the serpent. 
He's the one who would bring about judgment of God's enemies. He's the central figure of the entirety of the scriptures. Beginning all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, right after Adam and Eve have sinned, as God is pronouncing the curse, he says that he would one day send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And ultimately, this begins this expectation of a Messiah who would come and do just that. And we've seen throughout the book of Luke that Jesus is this figure. And in one, in one sense, this is, seems so obvious to some of you, I'm sure. And yet, how many people miss this? How, how many years, maybe perhaps some of us, spent reading our Bibles and not even really seeing or grasping that there is this plan of redemption that is being unfolded throughout the whole thing, that it has a consistent storyline, and that it's all pointing, that the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures are pointing ahead to this one who would come, and this one is none other than Jesus himself. And Luke, throughout the Gospel of Luke, is, is, is telling us this. If you think back to especially the early chapters, he piled up references to help us grasp this and to help us see this. So he, he refers to the book of Malachi as he's talking about John the Baptist. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. He talks about there, there's this prediction of one who would come, like Elijah, and he would be a forerunner. He would go before uh, this, this one who is a messenger of the covenant, before the Lord would show up to his people. Gabriel declared to Mary, as he's talking about the son that Mary has, that she is pregnant with, that he is in fact the son of David, who will inherit David's throne forever. We saw that back in chapter 1, verse 32 and 33. Then into chapter 4, as Jesus is beginning his earthly ministry, he himself is handed a scroll in, the, in a synagogue, and he reads from Isaiah, and he declares that he himself is the servant figure of the book of Isaiah, that he is there to proclaim good news and to liberate the captives. He says, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I am this person, is what he's saying. And so throughout this book, Luke has shown us that Jesus is not just dropping in out of nowhere to create some new thing. He is, in fact, the one who's long been foretold. That he is the one who would fulfill God's plans to redeem his people, to redeem all who would trust in him. As we've noted many times, it was the kingly role of the Messiah that was commonly emphasized. I think we all have these tendencies. We read the scriptures. We, we are drawn to certain teachings or certain doctrines or certain elements that dominate our focus. We tend to view everything through that. Uh, well, this uh, is, is kind of what happened with the people uh, in Jesus' day and before his day. The focus was on the fact that this Messiah would come and he would establish his kingly reign. It would be an eternal reign. And he's going to judge all of God's enemies and rescue his people. Uh, this is what the people focused on, this aspect of his role. And that's a true aspect of what Jesus does and will yet do in fullness. But the Old Testament also teaches that this Messiah, this figure had other work to do as well. He had other offices to fulfill other than just king. He also, for example, was to come and be a priest. So think of, of Psalm 110. Psalm 110. 
is a psalm that the author of Hebrews picks up on, if you've read Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is a, is a wonderful book that picks up on this, these Old Testament references to the uh, priestly work that Jesus did and needed to do and explains all of this in a wonderful fashion. And he, he spends much time expositing Psalm 110. And in Psalm 110, David is prophesying about the one who would come from his line. Remember, he has been told... Uh, back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he was told that there would be a king from his line who would reign forever on the throne. And, G and at times, David prophesies very clearly about this one. And in Psalm 110, he says, The Lord said to my Lord, to Yahweh God, said to my Lord, the one who's going to come after me, who is greater than me, who is from my line. So David's getting at. This is how the author of Hebrews tells us David uses this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then he goes on to say that this, this person will be a priest. He says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That this Messiah, this descendant of David, not only is he king, he is going to be a priest. He's going to be a priest. Not like the Levites, but he's going to be a priest. And as a priest, we know what do priests do. Hebrews 5.1 tells us they offer gifts and sacrifices on behalf of the people that they are interceding for. This is what priests do. They offer on behalf of those that they represent. And probably the clearest place in the Old Testament where this priestly work of the Messiah is mentioned is the text that was read earlier in the service from Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. Uh, in, in Isaiah, there are four what are commonly called servant psalms. These are sections about this servant who will bring about God's redemption. Uh, parts of these songs, they have words that are put in the mouth of the servant. So it's as if the, the servant is speaking in those cases. Uh, but other times, they are, they are words about this individual. They're about this servant. And the passage read earlier from chapters 52 and 53 of Isaiah... These are the, this is the final, or the fourth, servant song. And it, especially in hindsight, it so clearly describes and lays out the priestly work of Christ, the priestly work of the Messiah. A couple of phrases from those, that chapter we read earlier. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We think of the sacrificial system in which the hands of the offerer, the one offering the sacrifice, is laid, they, they lay their hands upon the head of the animal. It's symbolic of guilt and sin transferred to that animal, that animal being killed in their place. Well, on this servant, it's our transgressions, it's our iniquities that he's being crushed for, being laid upon him. A chapter speaks of him making an offering for guilt. It says, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Christ, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is his priestly work. So for the servant to do this, for the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent, to free a people for the Lord from the consequences of their sin, from the guilt of their sin, he would have to substitute himself in. He would become 
the one to bear the sins of those that the Lord would save. Again, this is not something, it's, it's very clearly spelled out in Isaiah 53, but it's not only found there. Again, if you think the, just the logic of the scriptures, right away from the early chapters of Genesis, we find out that the, the consequences, the wages of sin, the price for sin is death. then we know that for there to be any final and complete forgiveness of sins, and yet for God to still remain just in the process, there would have to be a perfect and infinite sacrifice for our sins, that God might be able to wipe our sins away and declare us righteous. If you were with us on Wednesday at the care home, we looked at Hebrews chapter 10, and we saw there the very fact that the Old Testament sacrifices continued, Daily, they were repeated. Uh, they show us, the author told us there, that, that reveals to us that those sacrifices were not enough to actually forgive a person of a sin, to actually remove somebody's guilt, to actually cleanse their conscience before God. Instead, we're told they were a shadow. They were pointing forward to something greater and that Christ is himself the substance that they were pointing to, the substance that casts that shadow. The reality is Christ. The perfect sacrifice is the Lord Jesus. And here he is in chapter 18 telling his disciples that he will fulfill all these things written about the Son of Man in the prophets. He's going to Jerusalem for that very purpose. It's the climax of his earthly ministry. Sometimes early Christians are accused of um, just borrowing or ripping things off from pagan religions. You've probably heard this. Or, uh, or philosophers. Uh, but such people and such claims fail to see that Christianity's roots are deeply embedded in the Old Testament scriptures. Right? Peter, Paul, these were Old Testament men. This is what Luke is telling us here. It's what Jesus was telling his disciples. The suffering of Jesus is potentially an embarrassment to claiming that he is the Lord of all. But this suffering of Jesus was always God's plan. Always his plan to redeem a people for himself. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.20 that Jesus was known. He's talking about Jesus as the mediator was known before the foundation of the world by God. This plan was, was made. Before anything was. That the son had chosen, had willfully, voluntarily taken this upon himself. As the father sent him in love. And so this is not making things up as he went along. It's not merely Jesus was not merely showing us a nonviolent way to live our lives or anything like that. It was a substitutionary work that Jesus accomplished. And it was a work that was in accordance with the scriptures. Not just the new, but the old as well. And so, as we look at these scriptures, behold the Christ, if you're trusting in him, your Messiah, your Savior, the one who stands at the center of the scriptures as the fulfillment of God's redemption. 
Secondly, let us behold the Christ in his reproach and his glory. So after, after saying, after telling them that he is going to Jerusalem to fulfill these scriptures, he explains precisely what he's talking about, what this is going to look like in verses 32 and 33. He says there, for, so, okay, so he's going to Jerusalem to fulfill these scriptures, these things will be accomplished, what things? For, this is what's going to happen, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. So again, the specific fulfillments he's talking about involve his suffering, they involve his death, and ultimately, finally, his resurrection. And so first, let's just consider Christ in his reproach. He says here that he would be delivered over to the Gentiles. And so we see this happen when the Jews hand Jesus over to Pilate and to the Romans. We see that we will see that more as we get to Luke chapter 23. They hand him over to Pilate and in spite and in malice towards the Lord, towards Christ, the one who done, did nothing wrong, had no guilt of his own, the one who is perfectly holy, they bring this man, they bring the Lord before Pilate to have the Gentiles execute him. Again, these, these are people who they claim to be great lovers of God. They claim to, to be children of Abraham. And yet, it is as Jesus has told them before, they are right there with their forefathers who killed the other prophets. And here we know they would hand over the Lord Jesus that he might be brutally beaten and finally killed. They would prevail upon Pilate with loud shouts. They'd prevail upon him with lies, with threat of uprising, threat to his own career even. They would hand him over to the Gentiles. David foresaw this in Psalm 22 when he speaks of dogs encircling the Christ. He's handed over to Gentiles. Back in chapter 9, uh, in verse 44, when Jesus first predicted his sufferings, so this here, if you see your heading, probably says something like Jesus foretells his death a third time. So there's three times where he, kind of in this very similar fashion, predicts his sufferings and his death when he comes to Jerusalem. It's not that he only talked about it three times. There are other instances we've seen, even in Luke, where he talks about what's awaiting him at Jerusalem. But back in chapter 9, when there's the first of these sort of formulaic uh, predictions of his sufferings, Jesus said he would be delivered into the hands of men. The deliverance into the hands of men that's referenced in chapter 9, I think is quite clearly, we talked about this back then, it's, it's, it's God's doing. God is delivering the Lord, delivering Jesus, his son, into the hands of men. This reminds us that these events that went on in Jerusalem, they're not merely man's planning. They're not, it's not merely man's planning and wickedness to put Jesus to death, though it is that. But it is, just as we've seen, it's God's plan. That as Isaiah 53.10 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So in Acts 2.23, which again, the book of Acts is part two of the book of Luke, written by the same man. In Acts 2.23, Peter says, This Jesus was delivered up, same concept, delivered up, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. 
God's delivering, but you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so what the Jews meant for evil, delivering up Jesus to be crucified, to die, God meant for good, delivering up Jesus as an offering to cleanse his children from their sins. And so if you're trusting in Christ, he was ultimately delivered up by God on your behalf. For you. That what he went through here was for you if you are trusting in him. Not only would he be delivered over to them, Jesus mentions five other despicable things that would occur. He says he would be mocked, he would be shamefully treated, and spit upon. We see the soldiers, the Jewish soldiers, do this very thing. The end of chapter 22 in Luke, we see it. They mock him, they hit him, they blindfold him, they tell him to prophesy, who hit you, they're having a good time at his expense. Luke even tells us in verse 65 of 22 that they were blaspheming him. Again, telling us here, you know, you don't blaspheme an ordinary man. You blaspheme God. You blaspheme the second person of the Trinity. And that's what they were doing to the Lord Jesus. They beat him. They shamefully treated him. The Sanhedrin, when he was arrested, he's brought before this council. They brought in false witnesses to testify against him. But we're told in the other Gospels they couldn't even get their stories straight. So they're breaking the law in order to try to condemn this man by the law so that they might kill him. It's the grossest miscarriage of justice from a human perspective that has ever been. There's been no justice, mis miscarriage of justice worse than this. You can't possibly get worse than this. It's Mark who tells us that when they condemned him at this Sanhedrin, some of the council members then began to spit upon him as they were striking him and hitting him. And then as Jesus was taken to Pilate, Pilate then realizing Herod is in town and Jesus is from Galilee, sends him over to Herod, where, in chapter 23, 10 and 11, we're told that the chief priests and scribes vehemently were accusing him, and Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. And they arrayed him in splendid clothing, making a mockery of his so-called kingship. We know also that he had a crown of thorns twisted together and placed upon his head, here is the word of God who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He has taken to himself a human nature. And here the word of God made flesh receiving this abuse, receiving this ignorant, malicious scorn of men. And he did this as a righteous sin bearer on your behalf. Again, if you've repented of your sin and you're trusting in the Lord Jesus, this is for you. This is on your behalf that he's done this. In another one of the servant songs in Isaiah, in chapter 50, verse 6, the servant is speaking. These are the words, really, of Jesus. It says, I gave, he says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. None, none of us likes being reviled. None of us enjoys being mistreated or thought ill of. How much more despicable is it when it's the Lord himself in that situation? And yet, he says, I gave my back to them. 
He says, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Behold your Christ. And as we look at him in in chapter 18 of Luke, he's not yet in Jerusalem, but we nevertheless see him with his face set toward Jerusalem. We see him intent on following through with this on behalf of his people. We see his love being displayed. He's preparing his disciples for what's ahead. There will be much confusion for them, and we know that. But they would at least have something to cling to. Jesus did tell them about this in advance. He's going ahead with this out of love for his people. He's there because out of love the Father has sent him. And of course, it's not just mocking. It's not just shameful treatment, as if that's not bad enough. He says after flogging him, they will kill him. We know it was Pilate who ordered the flogging. John 19.1 makes that clear. Luke doesn't tell us specifically that he flogged him, but he does tell him that in, in chapter 23, verse 16 and 22, Pilate says, I'll, I'll, I'll punish him. I'll punish him and then let him go, hoping or thinking that this might uh, satiate the crowds, that they would no longer want to follow through with the crucifixion. And so the Lord was stripped to the waist, and he was flogged. He was horrifically beaten. In man's eyes, this was done as punishment for him, out of hatred and despising of him. But ultimately, from God's perspective, this was, this was the chastisement that would bring us peace. And as Jesus knew, this flogging even would not be enough for these lawless men. He's presented before them. He's bloodied, he's beaten, crown of thorns, he's torn apart. But after this, they will kill him. The crowds we know demanded Jesus to be crucified, and at last he was. He was led away to Calvary by the hands of ungodly men, and he was put on a cross. A grave evil, according to man's intention, and a a picture of of what it is we do when we sin. That we revile God. That we spit in His face. And in a very real way, the song that we sang is very true. That it was our sins that held Him there. As we view these events from the eyes of the Father and from the eyes of Christ, as He is taking upon Himself the sins of His people, our sins, our blasphemies, our spitting in God's face, Again, a grave evil, according to man's intention, that the Lord would be crucified. And yet, in the wisdom of God, the very way that God would work salvation for sinners. Again, through all of this, Jesus bore the iniquities of his people and suffered not for his own sin, but rather, this was, as Peter tells us, the righteous for the unrighteous, substituting in for us. What he did, he did on behalf of his people. He did on behalf of all who would believe in him. And while considering the sinless one suffering, such awful suffering, is, is, it's such vile reproach is uh, a difficult thing to consider, a difficult thing to look at. Uh, as the Spurgeon quote from earlier said, the very sight also demands our adoration. If we are trusting in Christ, it demands our worship. That he came to do this 
on your behalf. That he did this voluntarily. Uh, some people distort this and try to say, oh, it's cruel. You have this father beating his son, you know, sending his son and crushing him. And what kind of love is this? The son voluntarily and happily lays down his life for his sheep. He tells us as much. This is the plan of the Trinity from before the foundations of the world. And if you're trusting in him, it's on your behalf. It's for you. This is your Christ. This is your Lord, your Savior. And we know, and he tells us here, he would suffer this great reproach, but it's not the end. His glory is more clearly seen in the final thing Jesus says would happen, namely that on the third day he will rise. The third day he will rise. The Christ would not only offer himself as a sacrifice for sin, not only would he be crushed for our iniquities, but he would also rise again from the dead. David again prophesied in Psalm 16 that God would not let his Holy One see decay. He would not let his Holy One see corruption. And again in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the Messiah had to be crushed for iniquities, but also he would not see decay. He was to rise and he was to ascend to the Father's right hand. And because of these prophecies, we saw back on uh, Resurrection Sunday as we looked at Acts chapter 2, Peter tells us there that because of what these scriptures say, it was not possible for him to be held by death. He had to rise from the dead. Again, his priestly work continues at the Father's right hand. He has forever been made a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He continually intercedes for his people. And so, yes, he has to offer himself, but then he also has to live. He has to rise in order to continue to intercede for his own. He must not see decay, and indeed, he did not, and he tells us as much. As you consider all of these things, as you consider Christ, all that he suffered, his rising again from the dead, do you see the beauty of this plan? Do you see your need for this? Do you see the greatness of the redemption he worked? Again, I'm not talking about do you just understand intellectually the words coming out of my mouth, but do you believe these things? That actually leads us to the final point, to behold the Christ with eyes of faith. Verse 34. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So interestingly, this passage concludes by telling us that the twelve disciples did not understand these things. They didn't get it. Now, this does not mean that the words were totally unintelligible to these men, uh, that they had no concept of what he was talking about whatsoever. Uh, they, they heard him. They would have understood what it meant to be flogged. They would have understood what it meant to be spit upon and beaten and mistreated. This is getting to the fact that they did not understand the true meaning of this. They did not grasp the significance of this. They did not see how... This could fit into their understanding of the Messiah. Again, we know this in Mark 8. Mark tells us, back when Jesus first tells them that he's going to die, remember what Peter did. Peter calls Jesus aside, and he says, and he rebukes him privately, it says. And then we know Jesus, that didn't end well for Peter, Jesus' response to him. But he, he rebukes him. What, 
he, he understood the words that came out of his mouth, that he must die and suffer, and Peter does not like this. He does not see how this fits possibly with the Messiah, and so he rebukes him. They understood that part of it, but they did not understand what it meant. They did not see how this fit with the Old Testament scriptures. Again, their, their focus was all on the fact that the Messiah would be the son of David, he would rule forever, kick out our enemies, all will be well. That's what they're thinking. And they've missed this priestly work of Christ. It tells us here that this was hidden from them. There's a question of whether this is the work of God, a divine concealing of sorts, or if it should just be understand more simply uh, to mean that they just simply didn't get it. Well, I would suggest that a divine activity is implied here based on the previous times when Jesus has predicted his, his suffering. So again, back in chapter 9, verse 45, it says there that it was concealed from them. That seems to be a little more than just, you know, they just didn't get it. Something, something or someone is concealing this. And then it gives a purpose. So that, for the purpose, that they might not perceive it. And so it would seem there is a divine purpose behind this concealing. The question, of course, is what is that? And we talked about that back in chapter 9. But I believe this, uh, this hiddenness is due to the fact that in God's providence... The full understanding of this was not yet made known. The full mystery of how this all fits together had not yet been revealed like it would be later. This might seem odd to us, but this is, this is really how God operated in history. If you think of this, that God did not just in one, at one time just reveal everything to humanity. He progressively revealed more and more truth about who he is, more and more truth about who the Messiah would be, more and more truth as time went on uh, about how this would all work out. And as we look in chapter 18 of Luke, we need to understand and remember that the events of Jerusalem have not yet occurred. But Jesus really, in chapter 18 here, he's prophesying what is yet to come. And it has not yet happened. And so even I think, you think of, of Peter, and he tells us that uh, the prophets of old they prophesied, it was true things they prophesied, it was, it was from God, and yet he says that they were looking intently to try to figure out what time and what person the Spirit of God within them was prophesying. So when are these things going to happen? Who is this individual that I'm prophesying about? It, they're prophesying truth, but there's still things that are not yet clear, and I think it's similar to what's happening here. The time has not yet come for this to be fully revealed because the events have not yet, be, have not yet occurred. So Jesus is prophesying to them. He's telling them what's going to happen. It's going to help them later on. But for now, things remain a little obscure, a little bit hidden. Back in chapter 9, we saw they were afraid to ask Jesus more about this. A full revelation of the Messiah had not yet come. But, if you keep your finger there and quickly flip to the end of Luke, in chapter 24, right near the end. Chapter 24, verse 44. Jesus is with the disciples, and he said to them, so these same men minus Judas, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What scriptures? And said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, 
and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So here Jesus eventually would and does and did illuminate their minds. He helps them to understand, to piece it all together on the other side of the events that occurred in Jerusalem. After his resurrection, he made it plain to them. He helped them. And these men, they then got it. And we know they got it. Because they would go on to preach these things and to preach these things very clearly. By faith, they received this teaching and understood it. And they would then give their lives proclaiming Christ. That he is the Messiah that the Old Testament pointed ahead to. We saw that again. Resurrection Sunday, Acts chapter 2. Peter, with a remarkable insight into the Old Testament scriptures. Preaching that Jesus is the Christ. By appealing to the book of Joel. By appealing to uh, the, the Psalms. He and these other men would call upon people, they'd give their lives to call upon people to repent. They would preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Christ's name. Well, our situation is different from the apostles as we find them in Luke chapter 18. We are well on the other side of the events that occurred in Jerusalem. And yet, ultimately, really, our need is the same. Not just to grasp the facts about Jesus but to behold the Christ with eyes of faith and to have God by His Spirit awaken us to understanding, to illuminate our hearts that we might truly believe this, that we might see that Christ has truly done a great work of salvation. It is not simply enough to know the facts. Friend, we need to entrust ourselves to the one who went boldly to Jerusalem to bear the sins of many, to rise again from the dead, to intercede for all those who would trust in Him. We must cling to Christ as though our very lives depend upon it because, in fact, they do depend upon it. And so let us go to Him outside the camp and to bear the reproach that He endured, bearing our own cross and suffering alongside of Him and yet finding in that place also the sweetness of our salvation. So I ask you, do you see this? Do you see this truly? Do you believe this? Do you recognize as we look at this, as, as Luke relays this to us, as Jesus tells us about this, as we think of him suffering on behalf of sinners, do you see your need for this sacrifice? Do you see your need for your sins to be wiped clean? Do you understand that this is a picture, all that he suffered, of your own sin before God? Shaking your fist at him, spitting in his face. Does this light up your heart with joy that you have such a Savior? If it does not, I would just implore you to think about the depths of your sinfulness. To think about what the scriptures say about human sin. And about the glory of God and the holiness of God and the God's judgment for sin throughout the scriptures. And to ask yourself how you'll stand before God when the day comes that you do stand before him, which we will. And then I would implore you to remember the person of Christ and to remember his great work on behalf of sinners and to trust him. 
to confess your sin to him and to trust him. And if you can see this and you have done this and you do believe in Christ Jesus, you recognize him to be your savior, you have no other hope, you, that you can see these things not merely with your intellect, but with eyes of faith, then you have much cause for rejoicing. Much cause to worship. To praise God for the, the great work of your Savior. And to own Him as your Savior. And to rejoice in Him not just as a Savior for man in general, but as my Savior. And this we can have. We've repented of our sin and are trusting Christ. We know He's our only chance, our only hope. So behold the Christ. He was foretold long ago. He's the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. Marvel at him as the one who bore such reproach on your behalf, rose in victory and ascended into glory and currently intercedes for his own. There is no other. Behold the Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we recognize that it was our sin that held Christ there. We were not physically present, but as those who have sinned against you, as those who are trusting in Christ, it was our sin that put him there. God, we, we praise you for the the brilliance of your plan, that though lawless men would crucify your son, this was yet your plan, that you meant it for good, that there might be redemption. And Father, that is our only hope. We have no other way we can come to you. And we, we acknowledge that. We confess that. We acknowledge our sinfulness and our need for Christ. And we give you praise. And I pray that we would be moved to, to joy at the, at the news of this, at the news of the good news of the gospel. And that we would be desiring so much in light of this to see your glory be made known, to spread. That we would be willing to bear the reproach of Christ in our lives, even as we are despised for trusting you, for believing you and your word. That we would find great comfort in the fact that Christ bore much reproach for our sake. So Father, we praise you, we give you thanks, we marvel at the fact that we might gain from the death of your Son. I pray that you would just bless the rest of our time together as we fellowship and as we worship you. We pray all these things together in the precious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.